0: Well, let me encourage you to take out your Bible like this, your smartphone, your tablet, wherever you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Now, while you're doing that, let me just take a moment and thank Scott Creed for teaching God's Word the last two weeks. I tell you what, we are a blessed church to have so many pastors that not only can rightly divide the word of truth, but are gifted preachers and teachers. And so, you as the people of God need to be very thankful that you've got men like Scott Creed and Steve Allen and others who can preach the word of God with power. Well, two weeks ago, Scott began our study of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven churches that that our glorified Lord gave a very specific, very personal message to. And yet, even though the message to these churches were specific to their church in their day and age and was very personal to where they are, it's a message that can apply to our church today. And so what we need to do as we read the message that Jesus gives to these churches is we need to ask ourselves, does this message apply to our body, our fellowship, our church And if so, how do we practically put into practice what the living Lord says that we are supposed to do? Now, in his message to the church at Ephesus, Jesus spoke about priorities. And he told us how easy it is to get our priorities out of order as the people of God. I want to remind you that Jesus spoke often about priorities. Jesus said that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul... With all of our mind and with all of our strength. And then we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a priority. Jesus said that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. That's a priority. Before Jesus ascended into heaven when he was giving his last word to his disciples. He said go into the world, make disciples, baptize them. And then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you to do. That would be a priority, the last thing that Jesus told his disciples, his followers to do. But here's what I know. If we as the people of God are not careful, we can get so busy doing good things that we end up neglecting the main things. And so we as God's people must always Look at what we're doing in light of the priorities that God has given us to make sure that we have not left our first love. Now, in the message Jesus gave to the church at Smyrna, Jesus spoke to them about suffering, and he told them to not fear even in the midst of suffering. Now, understand the suffering that, that Jesus was speaking of was not suffering that we go through because we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. I mean, that's just a fact because we live in a fallen world. He's not talking about the suffering that we experience because we inhabit a fallen body. Our bodies get sick, they get diseased, they grow old, they have pains. And sometimes we just say, we're just experiencing the sufferings for Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering specifically for the gospel suffering because of our love and devotion to Jesus Christ and he tells us how we are to live for Jesus in such a way that that suffering to be quite honest with you will be a part of our life but today as we look at the church at Pergamum I want us to to focus on what I believe is the most destructive weapon that Satan uses to stop the spread of the gospel To render the church ineffective. And it's not persecution. Because the fact is, every time the church has faced persecution, the church has grown. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's not persecution that is the greatest weapon that Satan uses. You see, the weapon that Satan uses most effectively doesn't come from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. The weapon that Satan most often uses to destroy churches is compromise. When we begin to compromise biblical truth in the areas of what we believe or how we live, we will discover that we are losing our power. Our churches may gain members. Our buildings may be full. But understand if we are compromising the Word of God, the kingdom of God will not grow. Danny Aiken, who is the president of Southeastern Seminary, said this Nothing will poison the body of Christ like compromise. And the church at Pergamum was in danger of compromising. The word of God. I want you to listen to what Jesus said to this church. Beginning in verse 12. Follow along. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. Where Satan has this throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Anapos. my My faithful witness who was put to death in your city. A city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. And and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden man. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Then, as we unpack the truths that, that Jesus gives to the church at Pergamum, I believe there are four things that you and I need to hear. The first thing is this. Jesus compliments them... On their faithfulness. He compliments them on their faithfulness. Don't miss what Jesus said. He said you are living where Satan has his throne. And then at the end of this phrase. He says where Satan lives. Yet you remain true. You're staying faithful to me. Now that word live. When it says where Satan lives. It speaks of a permanent dwelling place. In other words. What Jesus is saying is this. Satan chose at this time in human history, to have his home in Pergamum. Now, contrary to what some may think, Satan isn't in hell today. Satan isn't the prince of this world, and as the prince of this world, he has a throne in this world, and he has a home in this world. Let me remind you, Satan is not omnipresent like God is. Satan cannot be at all places at all times. Satan can only be at one place at one time. He has demons who work under him, who he can assign tasks, and he can send out to do certain things, but Satan can only be at one place at one time. And at this time in human history, his home, his throne, was in Pergamum. And if you ever wondered where Satan has his home today, I mean, is it one of the immoral, wicked cities of of America or Europe? Is it in one of the cities that that are controlled by Islamic extremists or, or atheistic dictators? Where does, where does Satan have his home today? My brother once told me that, that the darkest place he ever went was Dubai. He said he just felt oppression when he landed there. Perhaps you've traveled to a city, you've been in a country where... You felt this darkness. You felt this oppression even when you got off the plane. Now, the truth of the matter is, you and I do not know where Satan has his home today. But in the first century, Satan had his home in Pergamum, And in this place where Satan had his throne and he had his home, there was a church. And that church was to be salt and light in this dark place. This place filled with darkness and, and oppression. Can you imagine that assignment? Being called to win people to Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, to remain faithful in the place where Satan dwells. And yet that's what the church in Pergamum was doing. And, and in the midst of all of this, We are told that the church remained faithful. They stayed true to Jesus Christ. We are told even in the face of persecution and death. He gives us the example of Antipas. And and we don't know who Antipas was, but but many people say that, that he was the pastor of this church. Tradition tells us that Antipas was commanded to proclaim Caesar as Lord. And when he refused... They put him into a brass bull, and then they put that brass bull into a fire, and they roasted Antipas alive. We don't know how he died, but we know that he was put to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. In 29 BC, or AD, excuse me, Pergamum was the the first city in Asia that built a temple to Caesar. Now, everyone in the, the Roman Empire had to proclaim once a year, Caesar is Lord. But in Pergamum, they so worshiped Caesar that this became an everyday occurrence. Now, to understand, you could worship other gods. You could say Apollos is Lord. You could say Mercury is Lord. You could say any other God is Lord, but you must also say Caesar is Lord. But Antipas couldn't do that. You see, Antipas says Caesar is not Lord only Jesus is Lord do you remember what Jesus said Jesus said no one can serve two masters either he will hate the one and cling to the other he'll despise the one and love the other but you cannot serve two masters and because Antipas was unwilling to say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord he was put to death do you remember the words that that Paul wrote in Romans 10 verse 9 He said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In our day and age, we assume that that all we have to do is utter those words and somehow, some way, we will be justified and we will be saved. But, But you need to understand that you must always take a passage in the context of which it was written. And Romans 10 was written to the church at Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, which is where Caesar lived. And even though they only had to proclaim once a year Caesar is Lord, they would have to proclaim Caesar is Lord, or they would be put in prison, or they would be executed. And yet to that church in Rome, Paul said, if you want to be saved, you've got to confess Jesus is Lord. And so let me ask you a question. Are you willing to confess Jesus is your Lord? Even if it leads to death? Are you willing to confess Jesus is Lord if it causes you to lose your job or, or be thrown into prison? Or are you willing to confess Jesus is Lord even if it leads you to experience mocking and ridicule? That's why Jesus told us those who endure to the end will be saved. He's not saying we're saved by what we do. But what he was saying is true faith, saving faith, is an enduring faith. A faith that saves is a faith that changes you. A faith that saves causes you to want to live for Jesus and serve Jesus and and worship Jesus. And, And listen, there are some of you here today who in your mind said just a moment ago, oh, I would die for Jesus, and yet you aren't willing to be a witness for him today. Some of you say, I'll I'll die for Jesus, and yet worshiping him on a Sunday with other believers is a hit-and-miss thing. And I would dare say that if you aren't willing to live for Jesus and obey Jesus and follow what he says in his word today, then you're not going to die for Jesus. Now understand, that's what the church at Pergamon faced. They faced persecution and death, and yet they remain faithful. But may I say to you that that's what many Christians around the world today are facing? I know Scott spoke about suffering last week and I don't want to dwell on this but I, I think I need to let you know what people are facing around the world. In, in the book Global War on Christians, respected author and journalist John Allen said this. He said 80% of all acts of religious discrimination around the world today are directed toward Christians. 80%. Then he went on to say that 90% of all people killed today on the basis of religious beliefs are Christians. 90% Let me tell you a story. A story that was shared by one of our missionaries this past week. A story that he experienced personally over the last several months. One of his national pastor friends was going into a country to do relief work where the Islamic extremists have a stronghold. And he went in there. He did some relief work. And, and then as a group of people gathered, he began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. As he did, there was a man in the back that was wide-eyed. And this national pastor began to get a little fearful. He didn't know what this man had on his mind. And so as soon as he got through speaking the gospel, he began to leave. But that man caught him. And he said, you need to tell me more about Yeshua. You need to tell me more about Jesus. Because I had a dream. And I asked the man in the dream what his name was. And he said, Jesus, Yeshua, tell me who he is. This national pastor shared with this man about Jesus and what Jesus had done and how Jesus could save. He left. and, And then that man invited him back early in the morning and said, you must come before you leave the country. And so he went to his house, and when he went to his house, he said there was a mountain of shoes at the front door. Because in that culture, people took their shoes off before they went inside. And he went inside, and when he went inside, there were people on every wall in the room. And he had taken the bathtub out of the bathroom, and he had put a bathtub there in the room. And he said, I've accepted Jesus. I want to be baptized. The Bible tells me I need to be baptized. This national pastor said, well, let's talk some first. You need to understand that here there will be a great cost if people know that you've done this. And this man who had given his life to Jesus said, I don't care, and if you won't baptize me, I will baptize myself. And so that national pastor baptized him, left. The next day, the extremists came. They had heard that he had given his life to Christ. They came to his home. They took he, his wife, and their child outside. And as his wife and his young child looked, they slit his throat and killed him. When they were burying him, this national pastor came back. And when his wife saw him, she went to him and said, Do you have your Bible in the car? Again, he was a little fearful because he didn't know what she was going to do, but... He got his Bible and and before all of those people she held up the Bible and she said, my husband died because he believes this book is true and he believes that Jesus is true. And since that day, just months ago, there have been 22 groups of believers who have sprouted up in that country. From the blood of the martyrs, The church spreads. And you and I as the people of God, we must be willing to ask ourselves, do we really love Jesus that way? Are we willing to pay the price? So Jesus complimented them. He commended them for their faithfulness. But then Jesus kind of changes directions and he condemns them further compromise you see even though they had not denied their faith even in the midst of persecution they had allowed a problem to come into the church that had the potential of destroying the church and i believe that this problem is is greater today than ever in the history of our church notice what jesus said he said you have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then he said, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it's important for us to see that Jesus isn't directing his message to those who held to the teaching of Balaam. He's not directing his message to those who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He is directing his message to the church. Because the church, even though as a whole they had not embraced these views... They had refused to address these views. They had refused to confront these views. And they were tolerating those views. And because of that, biblical truth was being threatened. Listen, when you become a part of the church, the church has a biblical obligation to confront you in love when what you believe or how you live is not in line with the Word of God let me say that again you can come all you want and sit in a chair and listen but when you make a commitment to become a part of the church the body of Christ you become a part of a body and at that point The body has the responsibility and the obligation to confront you in love when what you believe or how you live is not in accordance with the Word of God. Why? Well, think of it like this. If the church is a body and one part of the body gets infected and the infection isn't treated, what's going to happen? That infection is going to spread through the entire body and it could end up killing the entire body. You see, we are a body. We're joined together. And what you do affects everyone else in the body. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. And he was speaking of how they were tolerating sin in the church your boasting is not good don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough now, now what does that mean what it's saying is it only takes a little sin to corrupt the entire body you have one or two people who have distorted beliefs and distorted lifestyles and it can affect the entire church and that's a dangerous thing and that's what was happening at pergamum now, what were the issues addressed that, that were affecting Pergamum? The teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the teaching of Balaam is, is found in Numbers chapter 22 and through 25. Balaam was a prophet, and he was a prophet who was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites. And three times he tried to curse the Israelites, but every time he tried, God wouldn't let him. Every time he opened his mouth to curse them, a blessing came out. And so Balaam realized, I can't curse them. But here's what you can do. If you can get the Israelites to compromise, then God will judge them. And so Balak, the king of Moab, got the Israelite men to to fall in love with the Moab women. They had sex together. And once they had this sex, then the, Mo, the Israelite men began to follow the gods of the Moabites. And, and the Bible says because of that, 24,000 Israelite men died. God was not going to tolerate it. But how did it happen? Balaam got Balak to get the people of God to compromise. And when they compromised and sin into the camp, God's judgment came upon them. Now, what is the teachings of the Nicolaitans? To be honest, we really don't know. Tradition tells us that Nicholas was one of the first leaders of the church, written about in Acts chapter 6, but... But over time, he began to believe that God's grace allowed us to do anything we wanted to do. And so he began to hold to antinomianism, which means no law. In other words, as a believer, I am free to do anything I want to do, regardless of what God's Word says. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, said this, the Nicolaitans lived a life of unrestrained indulgence now here's what we know we know that from the teaching of balaam and from what we know about the nicolaitans there was theological error they worshiped idols and there was living error they were living less than pure lives and so what does that tell us as a church today first of all we must not compromise our morality and in verse 14 the the word for immorality is porneia which which literally means all forms of of sexual sin and again i want you to know that if you're here and you're not a part of the Northside family and you don't call yourself a christian and you're living together or whatever else then my prayer is that you'll continue to come hear the word of god the word of god will convict your heart and you'll give your heart life to jesus But if you are a part of the Northside family, you have committed to live by a different standard. And to be perfectly honest with you, regardless of what we say as a church in our covenant, as a Christian, you have committed to live by a different standard. So hear me. If you are part of the Northside family and and we discover that you're living together outside of marriage, we will confront you. If we discover that you're having sex with someone that you're not married to, we will confront you. Why? Because God's word commands us to. And a little leaven will destroy the entire loaf of bread if you don't do something about it. Now, let me take this a step further, if I may. And I believe I'm under biblical grounds in doing this. We live in a culture today where marriage means nothing. People get married. They decide, I don't have that loving feeling anymore. And they get divorced. Brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't say you can do that. Do you hear me? Just because you don't have feelings for the person you said I do to doesn't mean that you can say I'm done with. The Bible gives really one ground for divorce. And that is sexual sin. And even then, the Word of God does not encourage divorce. It allows divorce. And I am afraid. I want you to hear me. I am afraid that one of the reasons that the Church of Jesus Christ in America has lost its power and lost its witness is because we, as the people of God, are not standing true to biblical values. And it's time that we do. We must not compromise our morality, but, secondly, we must not compromise our theology. The people of Israel, because of Balaam, began to worship the idols of false gods. I want you to hear what someone said an idol is. I think it's a good definition, better than I could do. So I want to read it to you. They said, it is anything or anyone in your life that is more important to you than God. It is loving anything more than God, fearing anything more than God, serving anything more than God, desiring anything more than God. It is anything that comes between you and God. An idol can be a statue carved out of marble, but it can also be a checkbook made out of paper. A car made out of steel, a boat made out of fiberglass, a house made out of wood. It can be a a degree framed and, and mounted, a cause joined and served, a talent mastered and employed, a physique developed and tanned. It can be anything or anyone that occupies first place in your life instead of Jesus Christ. That's why John warns us in one of his letters to keep ourselves from idols. Now, are there idols in the church today? You better believe there are. But can I address what I believe are the two most damaging to the church today? They're going to surprise you. They're comfort and safety we've made our comfort as believers and our safety as believers idols i think most of us here today recognize that the prosperity gospel is a false teaching i I think most of us here today understand that this health and wealth stuff is out of left field it does not come out of the word of god and yet I am convinced that many of us and and maybe most of us have bought into this lie that God wants us to be comfortable. That God wants us to be safe. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with comfort. I kind of like comfort. There's nothing wrong with safety. It sure is fun knowing that you're safe. But God didn't call us to a life of comfort and safety. The truth of the matter is, hear me, God called us to a life of suffering. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted to you. You have been given the privilege Not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. I don't know any of us who regularly in our prayer time says, Lord, please give me some suffering. But I've got to be honest, I've oftentimes prayed, Lord, please keep me safe. When I'm uncomfortable, I pray, Lord, help me endure, but I also pray, Lord, I'd like to be a little more comfortable. And yet God calls us to suffering. And here's what I know the church that is suffering. Around the world today. Is the church that is growing. Around the world today. That's the church that's having an impact on the world. But let's move on. So Jesus condemns them for the compromise. So what are they supposed to do? Notice what it says next. Jesus commands them to repent. Or he says I'm going to fight against you. You see, when a church or when we as individual believers find that we are in some stage of compromise, the only thing that we're called to do is confess our sin and repent. And this wasn't a suggestion, this was a command. And and the word repent doesn't just mean that we, we change what we're doing, it means we change how we think. I want you to listen to what Chuck Colson said about this passage. He said, In concrete terms, Christ demanded that the Pergamum Christians amend their attitudes regarding the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. That they take the necessary actions to remove these false teachers from the midst. The compromise had to end. Christ called for repentance, including a warning for those who refused. He would wage war against them. In other words, Jesus said, You need to repent Or I'm going to fight against you. And he tells us how he's going to fight. He's going to fight against us with the sword that comes out of his mouth. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so he's going to fight against us with the word of God. Now, now what is that going to lead to? The Bible doesn't tell us. All it tells us is if we as the people of God are unwilling to maintain biblical purity theological and moral purity as a body then Jesus is going to come and he is going to fight against us as a body and I'm here to tell you that that there are none of us who are followers of Jesus that want to be fighting against Jesus so what do we do? we repent we admit God we haven't been doing what we need to do Now, here's what I know. I know that the overwhelming majority of churches in America today never do this. They never exercise discipline. They never confront wrongdoing. And maybe what we're seeing happen in the church today and what we're seeing in America today is a result of Jesus' Now I'm fighting against us because the church, his body, his bride, is not pure. So what do we need to do? We need to repent. We as God's people need to, to say, we're going to become the pure body that God wants us to be. And understand, and I feel compelled to say this, this doesn't mean that I'm looking at everybody else as a spiritual policeman. Because some of you have that as your personality. It means that I am always looking at myself, saying, okay, is my attitude, is my actions, is my heart pure before God? And then when there are issues, we deal with those lovingly and redemptively because we care for people. So Jesus commands us to repent or he will fight against us. And finally, we see Jesus compensating those who overcome. Listen to what he says. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a name written on it that is known only to him who receives it. Now, what does Jesus say there? I believe he's promising three things. First of all, he promises to sustain us in the wilderness. That's what the manna was. When the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness between slavery and the promised land, Jesus fed them with this. Manna. He was meeting their needs. It was bread from heaven. And, and Jesus promises to meet our needs. And understand, this world is not our home. This is the wilderness. And don't get so comfortable here that you don't long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, I, I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to meet your needs here. But understand, I don't think that's the main point here. Because what does he say? He says, to those who overcome, I will give this. When do we overcome? We overcome when we stand before Jesus and we have been found faithful. And so he's talking to those who are now in heaven and they have overcome. And Jesus is saying, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this hidden manna. Now what does that have to say in regard to eternity? Do you remember what Jesus said? In Revelation 19, he said that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain. There will be neither hunger nor thirst. Do you remember that? So what is that saying? Jesus is saying, for those who overcome, there's coming a day. And oh, goodness, you'll never want again. And we've got that to look forward to. And then he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. This white stone was the stone of acquittal. When you stood before the judge, the judge would would show a black stone which represented guilt or a white stone which represented innocence. And Jesus is saying that when you overcome, I will give you the white stone. You'll be forgiven. You'll be redeemed. You'll be made pure and holy because you're mine. And then he tells us that he will love us intimately. He says that I will write a name on that stone known only to him who receives it. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to blurt out the name. That may be embarrassing, but, but how many of you who are married, you have a, a pet name for your husband or your wife? I'm not talking about that name when you're mad. I'm talking about that name when, Man, you just you just look at him or you look at her and you go, oh, baby, I love them. And you've got that name that you're not going to call anybody else that name. That's your name for that person that you love intimately and you're close to. And what Jesus is saying here is, oh, I want you to know that I'm going to give you a name. It's only between me and you. And that's Intimacy. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we'll know completely. Oh, can you imagine one day, one day, when everything is over, Jesus has for us a world where there is no more want, no more need. He acquits us and we no longer have to worry about guilt and shame. And he loves us intimately and even though there will be millions in heaven with us. Somehow, some way, Jesus will have that personal one-on-one time with us. Because he loves us. You see, we don't live for this world. We live for that world. And so as we're going through life here, don't focus on the comforts that that everyone else is focusing on. Don't focus on the safety that, that people long for because this world is not our home Make sure that as you live, you are living in such a way that that when you stand before him, he will say, you have overcome. Enter in. Here's what I have for you. Now, how do we overcome? Do we overcome by living a good life? Do we overcome by, by measuring up to a standard No. John told us in 1 John chapter 5, this is the way we overcome. It's even through our faith. But it's not a faith in facts. It's a faith that transforms. It's a faith that changes. It's a faith that, that sustains us in the difficult times of life. And that's how we know if our faith is real. If it's a real faith, if it's a genuine faith, it will sustain you. When the storms of life come, it won't cause you to turn your back. It will cause you to fall on your knees. And so if you're here and you've never had that kind of faith experience with Jesus where he's changed your life, his spirit is living in you, he's made you new, you long to live for him and serve him and love him and obey him, if that's not where you're at but today you know you want that, then you can have that. You just got to give your heart and life to Jesus and I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. But before we do, I want to talk to the church. Because you see, one day, our goal as the people of God is to be presented to our bridegroom, Jesus, holy and pure. And so we need to ask ourselves as the people of God, are we seeking to live right now in a way so that on that day we will be a spotless bride for our Lord. You see, that's why we confront wrong teaching. That's why we confront wrong living. Not to embarrass, not even to discipline. It's to restore and it's to make sure that we are being the pure people of God that God wants us to be. And so this is what I want us to do. If you're a part of the body of Christ, I want you to bow your head right now. And for the next moment or two, it's just going to be one or two minutes, I want you to pray. I want you to search your heart. And I want you to pray, confessing to God anything that you know is not right with Him. And then I want you to pray that we as a church called Northside will be a church that so loves the bride that we will be willing to confront compromise when it comes to biblical truth so let's pray Now, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, and today you know that you need to do that, and that's the desire of your heart, then I encourage you to pray this prayer to him right now. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I know I've lived in rebellion. I've gone my own way. I'm so sorry. I don't want to live in rebellion anymore. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. Right here Right now I'm trusting you to save me I'm surrendering my life to you I'm no longer my own I'm yours I want to serve you with all my heart I want to live for you completely. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to live a life that is pleasing to you. Amen.